Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, Ridley Scott makes Napoleon look about as competent as the Everton front office. That might not make a lot of sense to you right now, but by the end of this podcast, hopefully it will, after we explain everything on this week's pod. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me as always is John Neckersoff. And John, I feel like there are very few, um, you know, threads woven through the different subjects that we're going to be talking about on this podcast, other than perhaps mismanagement and disappointment. That's true, but you know who's not mismanaging things these days is Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta, because I am talking to you from the top of the English Premier League. It's a, it's a glorious feeling. Um, that really made my Thanksgiving. Um, you know, the Titans are back to winning ways, which so are the Steelers. And yeah. it's, a, it's a good time all around. Both of our, all of our teams won this Thanksgiving week. So I hope you, I hope you had a lovely time other than the sports wins, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. Yeah. I had a great Thanksgiving, watched a little bit of football. Um, I was more or less unplugged from the sports until we got to the, the soccer and then the football this past Sunday. Um, but had a, had a nice break. I I know you, you did as well. Um, did some traveling. So that was good. Um, it, it does feel like a more optimistic outlook for our teams as of late. And I know there's been certainly some depression from my side of this uh, Skype call previously this year, but it turns out that the Bengals are not very good without Joe Burrow. And uh, the Steelers did capitalize on that this past week. So I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting, I don't know. I had fun with the NFL this week and I think we're, we're looking at an interesting run in into the playoffs. Just talking a little NFL for a little bit. Jalen hurts. And the Eagles are like a serious force to be reckoned with. And honestly, like I really don't know what to expect from the 49ers now. Like mm. they had a little wobble and now I may be expecting them to go back um, to hit, make the NFC championship. I think an Eagles Niners rematch is very possible. And I think that would be fascinating. So I'm walking well, you, back. You, my earlier you know prediction. that I have. Yeah. I never gave up on San Fran. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I do feel like the Eagles kind of played the they were in the game of the year so far mm-hmm. and pulled it off against the Bills in overtime. And I I mean, at the class of the league, I would say most certainly, obviously, you, you put the Chiefs in the playoffs and give them home field advantage and they're going to they're going to be good. But in terms of consistent dominance, uh, I there is there is a, a, a class of one. And then below that, you know, another four or five, as we've been talking about, just continues to be a very, very chaotic season. Mm -hmm. I do. I do want to just give a brief shout out since we're on the NFL to um, New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito, who I once saw in person playing for Syracuse at Liberty. He did not perform particularly well, if I remember correctly. Um, but he's out here winning NFL games as an undrafted uh, backup after Daniel Jones got injured. Um, and he ran out to the Sopranos theme song uh, on Sunday, and that's just those are the immaculate uh, mafioso vibes that I would love to see from all quarterbacks, especially in New York. So, props to New York and props to Mister uh, Devito. No relation to Danny Devito, of course. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been a good year for him so far. A disappointing year for another New York quarterback, as a. Uh... <laughs> Zach, Zach Wilson was benched. That's a, it's a <laughs> tough situation so that, for that guy. Yeah. And then I guess lastly, the NFL was the, the Frank Reich firing, which I think was a bit of a surprise today and doesn't quite, we talked about shortest we, with the urban Meyer pod, uh, podcast. We did, we talked about some of the shortest tenures in coaching. This one is not quite the shortest, um, but for him to be fired 11 games in based on performance and not, some sort of moral or character issue, like like in the case of Urban Meyer, is certainly a. Um, I think it's a controversial choice by the Panthers. It's a bold choice, and it's it's not one that I support. I'm, I'm as you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the mid season firing, and so um, yeah, we'll we'll see if this stabilizes them at all, or if this is now uh, tank for the next Alabama quarterback that they want to get. <laughs> if they draft another quarterback over Bryce Young after tr- making that trade with the Bears, like that's that's an unbelievable uh, move from them. I will say though that if you lose to the Titans this year, you probably deserve to lose your job 
Like every single coach who's lost to us should be fired <laughs> with the way we played this year. Um, but you know, someone there's someone in this world right now who most definitely should not be fired from his job. And mm. I just kind of want to, I want to give the floor to you to talk about maybe one of the most remarkable things I've seen this year. Um, definitely this year, possibly even this decade. Um, and I mean, of course, the a uh, certain Argentinian winger that plays for your beloved Manchester United. We've talked a little bit about Manchester United this year, particularly the forwards, who uh, for the most part are either in disputed legal issues or are <laughs> desperately trying to get out of the team and leave. It's a problem. Or they're not playing well. And the one bright spot we've had is our teenage superstar, Alejandro Garnacho, who scored a goal. And you can you can look up uh, Garnacho goal v. Everton on YouTube or whatever. And what you will see is, I think, the clear goal of the season. Oh, I, unquestionably. I, it's going to be the, the goal of the season winner, the Puskas Award winner next year. And one of the, like, goals that you will see on montages for the Premier League for the rest of time, like one of the all-time goals. It's very similar to a goal Wayne Rooney scored um, that you see all the time on these like Premier League advertisements, like the Barclays ads or whatever. But I think I think this one's better in some ways. It's a little bit further out. It's a little bit less central. The goalkeeper actually dives for it and, and still can't get it as opposed to the Wayne Rooney one where he's pretty much center of the goal goalkeeper doesn't move at all and he's closer into the 18 yard box um this goal is just perfect technique um it, it, it's right on the volley um it's a huge cross across the whole field and he times it to perfection it is a bicycle kick for the ages um definitely was the bright spot of my sunday when i got home from church and started catching up youtube tv has a really nice feature where you can start a game and then catch up like you can watch the key plays oh, right, and then right. it goes live so i did that and the first thing I see is two minutes in is this goal. And I'm like, oh, we're doing that now. Um, yeah, an incredible goal. I'll, I'll tweet it out. I, I already have tweeted it out, but I'll tweet it out again with this podcast and people can uh, can check it out. Hopefully it becomes a gif I can use a lot. It literally, it deserves so many tweets. It When you think about the Rooney goal, obviously that was against Man City. So like there's a certain stage that that one was on, like very much like the Gareth Bale goal. Uh, in the Champions League final, that like when we're doing a power ranking of bicycle kick goals, like I think the situation does factor in. Um, but like Ronaldo's goal against Juventus, uh, whenever it was a few years ago, I think this one's better. And that one was like considered an all timer. I think this is a a prettier goal. It's from further away. It just like it just has this loop that just like goes right over the goalie's hand up into the top corner. That's just it's majestic. It's nothing short of majestic. Other than the like, other than the Zlatan Ibrahimovic goal versus England, which is still the most absurd goal ever it scored, insane, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I mean, you can put this one up against really any bicycle kick that's ever happened. I think the in recent memory, it's it's the Bale one and it's the Ronaldo mm -hmm. one are the right. two that have happened like really more more recently. And then I think this one's right there. I think I agree. I do think that's Zlatan. I think you're right. This Laton one may be the greatest goal ever scored. I, I think it is pretty unquestionably. Like you can make some cases. It was just a friendly, I think. So like you can make some cases for other goals, but like in terms of audacity, in terms of skill, like nothing has ever been tried like that before. No, and I don't think no. anything will ever be tried like that again. I think <laughs> so that's right. I think it's, I think it's gotta be there in terms of goals that we've recorded. You know, that were not scored like on some weird field somewhere in Brazil in like 1970 that no one ever saw. I think I think it's got to be that one. It's, but yeah, pl yeah, please do yourself a favor and find that goal. Watch it. Enjoy it. Soak it in. Um, and that might be where my uh, Manchester United season peaks this year. So I'm going to take what I can get. <laughs> if we're not going to win any team awards, John, let's at least win goal of the season. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's a justifiable goal. Um I, th we're going to come back to Everton. Yeah, we are. Um, they, the victim of this goal and the victim of another serious <laughs> issue. Yeah, much more serious punishment uh, that may have much more serious ramifications. But first, we have a brief uh, side note that's we don't have a ton of information on, but we do want to touch on first. 
Yeah, just to say, we talked about this, a similar incident when it was uh, Wander Franco, the player for the Tampa Bay Rays, who was under investigation for his relationship with underage girls. And he was put on uh, leave, administrative leave from Major League Baseball. Um, we have a similar situation in the NBA with Oklahoma City player Josh Giddy, who's a pretty talented young player. Um, he was a top 10 draft pick. He's had a decent season this year. And he's now under investigation by the NBA for having his photos and videos taken around a girl um, who has now been identified by an anonymous social media account as potentially a junior in high school and being investigated for a potential relationship with an underage girl. Um, the age of consent in Oklahoma is 16, which means you could be a 16-year-old junior, so there may not be any legal issues necessarily, but certainly it, it is an issue. Um, it's a little awkward to talk about. One, because this social media account that has allegedly reported this incident has since been deactivated, and so like there's not really uh, taking any accountability for what's going on. And so there's that, and then there's the fact that nobody involved is really commenting on it yet. And I think one of the key differences between this story and some other stories we've had, like like the Anthony situation or the Mason Greenwood situation, well, I guess more similar to the Anthony and less like the Mason Greenwood is that Josh Giddy is continuing to play. Um, Wander Franco, when he had the similar thing, he was put on leave, but Josh Giddy is continuing to be an active part of the Thunder roster. And I, I, I assume that he's going to continue to just weather this out as long as the investigation goes forward and then they will address it if they need to afterward. But I don't think there's a lot of like really, really reputable information here to speak too much upon, but just initially, how do you think the NBA is handling it? And if you were in the league or in the Oklahoma City front office, would you consider having him not play for the course of this investigation? Yeah, I think it's a weird situation. Um, both Giddy and his coach were asked about the situation directly by reporters, and they both declined to comment. Um, so it's just worth noting um, like you said, the NBA has recommended no further course of action other than the investigation they've started, which kind of, you know, leads us to the sort of situation that we've talked about before when it comes to league rules versus legal rules. Like as far as we know, there's no criminal case that's been opened. Um, as far as we know, nothing like that has been brought forward other than just the social media posts that were since removed. Um, I took some time looking around last night trying to see if I could find anything um, and found some of the videos um, that were up. But, you know, there's nothing that's actually fully corroborated anything about the actual girl's age or anything like that. Right. Um, so we're kind of, I think, in a wait and see. And I think it makes I think it makes sense for the Thunder to keep playing him, honestly, unless we actually get clear evidence that he shouldn't be. You know, mm -hmm. I think if in my mind, I mean, I think I'm open if you disagree, but in my mind, if there's no actual concrete information that's brought forward, been brought forward, maybe the Thunder have it. I don't know. But as far as we know, from a public perspective, if we don't have clear information, then it doesn't make sense for them to take, you know, a job related action. No, I think that's right. I think it would be different if there was someone who had like put their name to a police report right. or something like that, where there was an actual like opening of a legal proceeding or some sort of information that was actually being acknowledged, not anonymously. But uh, I think the speculation of an anonymous social media account about a previous, a, a so far unidentified girl is a little, a little weird, I think to be to, for them to take stronger action on, I think. Right. Right. And I'm sure if she is actually a minor, that I'm sure the league will kind of, I would guess the league would protect her identity until necessary. I'd hope right? so. Yeah. So, so I think this is definitely a wait and see situation. Um, you know, if obviously legal proceedings do occur, then I definitely don't think he should be playing just like, I don't think Anthony should be playing. Right. Um, but as of right now, I don't think the thunder is doing anything particularly wrong. Um, but it is a strange situation that we will keep an eye on. Yeah, just just be careful who you hang out with. And uh, if someone tells you how old they are, uh, confirm it. Don't just, yeah, I think there's a few just brief let Just be careful, especially when you're a celebrity. You got you to gotta be watching out for these things. Yep, I would be, lots of weird I would celebrity be, stories. I would want the ID of every single person I talked to if I was an NBA player. <laughs> I, should stuff start, like this going I on. think I should start doing that in general. 
Yeah, just yeah. Before we have this conversation, I want to. Like, I want to. Can see I say? Your, can I say RD, please? Yeah, <laughs> just, just license and registration before license and registration, any conversation please. with any strangers. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that sounds right to me. Um, yeah, okay, John, back to Everton. I think this is where we're going to spend mm-hmm. uh, the most of our time today. Um, we mentioned they they were the victim of a bicycle kick by a Garnacho. They were also the victim of a ten point Premier League points deduction this year, which just to start off is really really catastrophic for them. Um, before this happened, they were on 14 points for the year, which put them at 14th in the table. Uh, 14 minus 10 is 4, and 4 Thank puts them in 19th position and tied for the lowest amount of points in the Premier League. Um, three teams get relegated, so the, I mean they are—they have literally been punished into the relegation zone, tied for bottom. So you would think that they would have the quality to get out of it if they could actually, you know, be 14th on their quality and have 14 points. You, you would think maybe they have the talent to get out of this, but this is obviously they're now in a pretty precarious position. And this is kind of a unique, at least in modern times, a unique punishment for the Premier League to dole out. So why don't you explain what this investigation was about? And then after that, we can talk about what was decided and, and what it means. Yeah, this is a big, um, like you said, an un- almost unprecedented um, decision that the Premier League has made after an investigation into Everton's financial practices. Um, so like you said, I think we're going to start with kind of a breakdown of what exactly happened. And then we're going to talk about sort of the consequences, because this is a similar, not necessarily a similar case, but we've talked about um financial charges that have been brought against teams like Manchester City by the Premier League. There's an investigation that's currently ongoing since, I believe, sometime last year. Um, Maybe it was this spring. Um, But, you know, this whole conversation is kind of happening in light of a lot of concerns surrounding financial mismanagement um, of soccer teams in general. So this is kind of the latest in a whole series of conversations that we've had about both small and big teams. But this is the really the first time that the Premier League has taken such an aggressive stance. Um, and it's kind of interesting. So essentially a commission began reviewing Everton's situation uh, in March, according to The Athletic, except here, unlike with Manchester City, which is still an ongoing situation, um, a decision was made and the unprecedented penalty of a 10-point docking was made, which has only been done five times in the English First Division ever in history since the 1890s. That's a very long you time. You mean t- being docked 10 points or being docked points at all? Dock, dock points ever. Is 10 the most ever? Mm-hmm. Okay. 10 points is the most ever. Um, penalties have been given out for going into administration. Um, mm-hmm. So a team like Portsmouth um, in this century basically financially collapsed and was punished for it. Um, this is also, Gar- this, is, Gar- this has County had a points reduction. Right. So that's, um, in the, was in the second division, which they survived right. being relegated. Um, so I think it has happened in the lower divisions more because teams go into administration more, but because it's so rare for a team in the Premier League to basically financially collapse, um, because of the amount of money that's running around, it's actually pretty rare that that happens. So this is this is a crazy situation that's happened, um, and essentially, according to the Athletic, um, basically Everton's been accused of misrepresenting number one, mismanaging money, and number two, essentially lying to the Premier League about how they are mismanaging their money. Um, so a little bit of background is. So according to the Premier League's financial rules, which are called the PSR, Profitability and Sustainability Rules, um, teams can lose, over three years, a total of £105 million. Um, And that's kind of built into the system so that teams are obligated to manage their funds correctly instead of money just being pumped in by an owner, spending it, and mismanaging it and then getting more money being sent in uh, to bail the team out. Um, so basically, these rules stop teams from spending beyond their means and 
stopping rich teams, especially from basically cheating the system and allowing owners to basically buy their way to success, no matter how bad the team actually is functioning. Um, so Everton, over the last three years between 2019 and 2022, lost an unprecedented amount of money, which Everton claims is lower, but the Premier League alleges is around $124 million, which is 19 million or 19 million pounds over the limit um, that the Premier League established. Um, so Everton's blamed that on a number of things. Basically, you can kind of write off some of those um, financial losses due to a number of factors that the Premier League allows, including things like um, building infrastructure or spending money on your women's team or even the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so Everton tried to blame, during this investigation, tried to blame these enormous losses, which were, I think, at least $50 million more than any other team um, in the league over that same period. And the Premier League didn't buy it. They were basically like, yeah, COVID can account for some of this, but the amount of money that you have catastrophically mismanaged is beyond anything we've basically ever seen. Like the 105 million cap is something that no team has ever like even come close to meeting before. Um, and so the league basically said after around like 40,000 pages of documentation were submitted throughout this investigation, the league basically said, this is essentially financial cheating. Like you are breaking the financial rules of this league um, and trying to get around them. And then when you're questioned about the situation, particularly in regards to how money was coming in um, from their owner, Farhad Mashiri, uh, to structure loans for their stadium, they basically misrepresented how those loans functioned to the league. Um, and that essentially created the situation where we are today, where they have wasted money on failed player after failed player like James Rodriguez and Richarlison who are on huge wage bills. Um, all of them essentially didn't pan out and they've been fighting relegation for the last few years. And now they've ended up in this situation where they are fighting relegation more seriously than they ever have before um, because of the financial decisions they've made. Um, so it's important to note undergirding all of this is the fact that they're trying to build a new extremely expensive stadium um, that is causing a lot of this financial turmoil as well as the relegation battle they're fighting. So that's kind of a general overview. Um, I don't know what, I guess my question to you to start would kind of be like, what are your general impressions of, I don't know, like, do you think the penalty is fair given the financial situation or do you think that they should have been punished financially instead for what happened? I think the punishment is fair in the sense that a team is being punished for their own irresponsible behavior. Right. Um, I think one of the things that any casual or serious Premier League fan has noticed is that Everton, more so than any other team, has been a team that has tried to function like a big club while actually being a small club. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like you mentioned, the players are getting. They had Carlo Ancelotti as their manager, who, when he left there, went to Real Madrid, which is literally the biggest club in the world. And there was no point where people reasonably thought that Everton was at that tier. And yet, those are the kinds of players, that was the kind of manager they were trying to get. They were really trying to buy, temporarily buy their way into big club status. Right. And, they're, and they're obviously, I think, properly being punished for that. I... I I don't think it's going to really matter that much because I do think Everton will survive the the season. I would mm -hmm. expect them to. And so ultimately, I don't think this punishment is going to end up like completely ruining them because I don't think they were going to compete for the title by any oh, means. Obviously not. But no. it, it, really, like, it really doesn't matter if they finished 14th or 17th. But I, I do think that they will not be relegated. And you can clip this and send it back to me if they do. And I'll have to reevaluate my position. I guess... My larger question is, and my larger impression is, is this type of financial model healthy for the competitive nature of the league compared to a, mm. a salary cap model? Because it's very, very, very aristocratic for me to be saying that a club was pretending to be a big club while actually being a small club. Because is that what we want our sports to be? Where you were the big the teams in the big markets, the London teams, the historic teams, the financially successful teams are the ones who win, and the little clubs literally have no chance. 
that's not really the case in the NHL. That's not really the case in the NFL. It's it's a little bit more so the case in somewhere like Major League Baseball, but even there, like the, the Arizona Diamondbacks beat the Los Angeles Dodgers. That doesn't really happen very often in the Premier League, where you know the, the Luton Towns beat the Manchester Cities and win the title or something. And so I guess I understand why FFP exists in the sense that you spend as much as you make. You make money based on ticket sales, TV rights, uh, merchandise sales, and advertising, and then you can buy that many players. But I think as more and more attention is being paid to some of the lower-level teams, whether it's Derby when they had Wayne Rooney as a manager, or Wrexham with their TV show on Hulu, I think, or, or Ted Lasso kind of portraying this fictional team being in the championship, I just think it's really interesting that the international football system continues to operate in a world where success is quite literally paid for mm-hmm. and where there seems to be no way for small teams to sustainably compete. And I guess I just don't know. I don't think there's an easy fix because I think you'd have to reconsider the entire promotion relegation system. There'd be a whole lot of problems with trying to go to a different model. But I guess I just wonder, like, does this strike you as fair? Because all Everton were trying to do was compete with the best by spending. And now they're being punished and it never worked out. And maybe the answer is it never would have worked out anyway. But I think that my hesitancy to say Everton definitely did something wrong is that the decisions they were making seem to be decisions designed at being a competitive soccer team in the Premier League. And now they're being punished for actually trying because I guess they should have just kept lowering their wage bill and buying worse quality players and always been 15th in the table instead of actually trying to be fifth or fourth. I think it's a great point, actually. I think it kind of simplifies sort of the financial like question that we're asking here because there's a lot of like weird details, as always, regarding regulations that we're talking about here. But the real, the real, the real crime that Everton committed was betting current money on future success. Their goal was spend a ton of money on players that we can't really afford within our means make European spots, um, make money from competing in Europe, and then they'll be fine because they're paying everything back that they spent originally with European competition. However, the play, the choices on players that they made were bad. And a lot of the choices they made on managers were also bad. They didn't make good investments. And even on the investments that were okay, they still ended up suffering. Um, and the team just didn't perform like it should, right? They hired Frank Lampard, and he didn't do a particularly good job. So the bet failed, right? Um, And that means now that they are, you're right, they're being punished in a way for trying to bet on success. Yeah, like the the Panthers missed on Bryce Young, and their coach got fired, but they're not, like, getting fined or, like— Again, exactly. like yeah. you, you should be allowed to make bad decisions as long as you're trying to be competitive. Right. So I think I think then here's where the Man City thing comes in, right? Because the the goal of these rules is to stop because there's no salary cap, the goal of these rules, at least in my mind, is to stop owners basically to stop the league from being a spend off between rich owners. Right? Because let's say we take a league where there's no there's no FFP rules and there's no salary cap, right? What you have then is just unlimited spending as much money as the owners want to put in. So then you have like the Saudis spending against the UAE, spending against random American billionaire X versus random British billionaire Y, right? And you just try to see who wants to invest more money and there's no consequences, right? And you just spend and spend and spend and spend and spend. And that's not a sustainable model really either because no one wants to watch a sports league where it's literally possible for someone to actually just buy as many players as they want. That's kind of like what we saw with the Saudi league this year. Um, It's just unfettered spending. And that's just, it's an insane model to follow. Um, But the flip side of that, you have here Man City kind of being alleged that they're doing the same thing, but different in that, 
I guess they're abusing the other end of the spectrum, which is that they're they're accused of artificially inflating the club's revenue so that they can spend more money. While here, Everton is just spending money they don't have. Um, And so you have here a situation where ideally, you know, this would protect the lower club from, you know, being totally outspent by the bigger club. But because the bigger club keeps inflating its revenue, allegedly, and either way, the bigger club still makes, brings in more money, the bigger club will always have better players. Like there's no way, like you were saying, for the lower club without like a complete transformation in business practices, there's no way from a sporting perspective from that smaller club to really ever actually compete. Like with Brentford, Brentford's a good team. They will never compete with the actual top six in the league because financially they will just never be on that level. Yeah, I guess the Manchester City comparison is good. If I was going to really, really boil down my problem with this is that while financial fair play does prevent a team from quite literally buying a championship like like Manchester City can't spend that much more than Liverpool or whatever like right. at some point the, the the big clubs that are making roughly the same revenue have to spend the same amount what FFP does allow is for a set of big clubs to make success completely untenable for smaller clubs mm. because there is going to be a tier of clubs that are either old money historic new money or well-located that will always be able to spend more than everybody else. So in the Premier League, you have City, United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham. One of the, the, the big six, they're called the big six for a reason. And mm-hmm. it's because they will always have more money than Everton. And if you're allowing them to spend all the money they have, then it doesn't matter what Everton does. They'll never have enough. And the problem that a salary cap fixes is that it makes the, the 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 playing field actually level? You know, it might the the salary cap could be higher than what Sheffield Wednesday could afford, but in theory, everyone could af- could try to afford the same thing. And I, I think there are other reasons why, like I said, a, a, an actual salary cap doesn't work, but it it does create. And I I, I use this. I apologize for this reference, but it does create a caste system of Mm -hmm. clubs right and there may not be a solution to that and i think it's ffp is identifying a real problem but it's but it's really only acknowledging the competition taking place among the super teams Hmm. and it's completely irrelevant for the little teams i think that's a really good point and you're right i don't know like i don't know how we tackle that though like there's never gonna there's never gonna be the problem is that there's never gonna be a salary cap in international Soccer, like the MLS can't compete with the quality of European clubs because there's a limit to the amount of spending that these teams can do. So you can only bring over a select amount of players that are any good um, to be on your team and you can only pay them so much money, right? Um, In Europe, you have so many leagues that are all in direct competition against each other that if a player wants a certain wage... And they want to play on a good team unless like collectively Europe. I mean, you could do this if there was a super league, right? And all the best players played in a one unified league and that that league had a salary cap. But otherwise, because it's such a fragmented, like almost federalist system, like any league that incorporated something like that would then be punished by the rest of the leagues. Like you'd have players going to Saudi Arabia to make the money that they want or going to France or Italy or wherever. Um, so like, I don't, but I feel like there has to be a better way to solve the problem than the way FFP does its rules right now. Um, because as it is, you're right. There's no, there's no incentive for teams to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, if you fail your bet, you're instantly punished. Right. Yeah. the The only way to get better is to be more popular, mm-hmm. which which actually makes you more money. But in reality, the only way to be more popular is to be successful, unless you're like unless you're Wrexham, right? I guess you could you could celebrity your way into success. Right. If ever if Everton brought if if Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift bought minority shares in Everton 
and decided to make a TV show about Everton. And then they started making a bunch of money off of that. Then all of a sudden, Everton actually maybe could compete. You know, we see J.J. Watt is investing in West Ham or, or what we're seeing, like I said, at Wrexham. But normally, in normal sports, popularity comes from success. And in soccer, they actually require the opposite. You have to sell lots of jerseys, sell lots of tickets, and have lots of advertisement in order to be able to pay for on-field success. And that's completely opposite of what American sports fans are trained to expect. Right. I think, and I think ownership plays kind of a key piece in the puzzle that we haven't really fully touched on here yet. Um, so like I said, currently Farhad Mashiri is the current majority shareholder. Um, and he, you know, is a huge part of the mismanagement of what's going on right now. And there's an ownership group 777 that, is kind of lurking in the wings, potentially hoping to buy out Everton, which you know will potentially be another huge factor in the story. But I think one of the weirdest parts of the story is actually Mashiri's ties to Russian oligarch Alisher Usmanov, which is a huge part of this financial situation that basically happened when the Russia-Ukraine war started. Um, Usmanov was one of the world's richest men, also has close ties to Vladimir Putin, um, owns a company called USM Holdings um, that was a sponsor of Everton in a deal that was worth over 100 million pounds, um, and also had numerous loans to Mashiri independently through various um, companies owned by Usmanov and there were some very like strange ties as it always is with Russian oligarchs, but there were a lot of strange financial ties in, especially in regards to the stadium. Um, it seemed according to the guardian, like much of the money that Mashiri was spending on the stadium in loaning to Everton to build the stadium was coming out of loans from Usmanov, basically meaning that, this oligarch money was directly involved in almost every aspect of the club's expansion. So when the, those ties were cut off, when the war started, all of that money dried up, right? Including the sponsorship deal between USM and Everton. Um, and so that basically, again, shows like, you're right. Celebrity owners, nation state owners, oligarch owners like Roman Abramovich, um, who formerly owned Chelsea, these people all in a way determine in soccer whether you're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have ties to sketchy money, it almost seems like to a large degree, it's incredibly hard to compete. And the only way that you can really elevate your business is if you find to take a company, a weird company or a nation state to take you over. Like going back right. to the Saudi conversation we had last week. Right, and and even the nation states like Manchester City, if they're not gonna try to breach FFP, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure how being bought by Saudi Arabia necessarily creates you more profit, unless either a bunch of really rich Saudi Arabian citizens are coming over and paying five figures for tickets, or or that takeover comes with increased advertisement or whatnot. I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure, but there has right. to be some translation between your ownership and actual merchandise being sold and i think like with with something like saudi arabia and newcastle my guess is that saudi arabia are just they're probably just buying a bunch of newcastle jerseys in saudi arabia and sending their citizens as tourists to newcastle to pay twenty thirty thousand dollars a seat and then that that's all the money that's being funneled that's the way that they're money laundering it is just by boosting the the boosting the popularity in their own country as, as the sole Premier League team in Saudi Arabia and then using that to boost the profit, which then allows them to spend more. Right. They also get involved in infrastructure in the cities, which is interesting. Like yeah. Abu Dhabi has been incredibly involved in Manchester's economic development um, since they took over Man City. So I do think that there is, there is a serious goal for them beyond like any allegations of financial impropriety that's happened their their goal is to boost the mechanism that is the club as a whole 
so that they are getting in more legitimate money as well, right? Because that that helps them out. They both get a sports washing benefit. They get an actual financial benefit, and they get the potential um, actual just genuine success that comes from investing in a successful team, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guarantee that Newcastle's revenue has skyrocketed since the right. Saudi takeover. Right. Yeah. I guess my point is that that can't just be the the crown prince just set, put adding more doing a wire transfer to the Newcastle bank account. Right. Right. They have to somehow launder it through the normal means of revenue. Right. And so that's where things like sponsorships from supposed separate companies come in and like the um, Emirates Airlines like the U or not the Emirates Airlines but the the UAE um airline money that supposedly was kind of connected to Manchester City was a lot of the um, a lot of the allegations regarding Man City came through whether they were basically rerouting money Mm -hmm. from the owner to the sponsorship and then back to the club because obviously they're all owned by the same person right anything else on this subject John before we move on no I think it's I think well I do think the the one thing we should touch on yeah. is the fact that Man City is being faced by charges different than this, but like this. And Chelsea is also under serious investigation um, after recent leaks reported on by The Guardian point to similar suspect payments like we talked about with Osmanov headed to Chelsea from Roman Abramovich during his time at the club um, as the owner. Um involving a lot of like offshore payments basically being made into the club um, to boost the club's economy um, entirely illegally. So we'll see what happens with both of those. But I don't know. What do you think? Like, to me, it still seems completely improbable that City will ever be punished like this in any way, shape or form. But if this really is a precedent by the Premier League that they will punish all types of financial propriety, you know, if they punished Everton by a 10-point deduction for mismanaging around 20 million in change pounds. If Man City has mismanaged as much as it's been alleged that they've, not mismanaged, but if they've essentially money laundered as much as it's alleged that they have, I can't imagine what the penalty would be if they actually are confirmed guilty. Yeah, I think I'm more likely to believe that they would punish City today than I was before this. Hmm. Um, and I, I think part of that is that there's there's this Americanized view of what the super teams are in England, and certainly City are one of those teams, multiple time title winners, current Champions League winner, all that all that stuff we've talked about. But I do think that in England there isn't there probably is not this sense that one Premier League club is that much more untouchable compared to another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Everton are not a insignificant part of the infrastructure of the Premier League. They're, I mean, they've been a staple of the Premier League. They're in a big city. They're in Liverpool. They are like a popular team, relatively. And so I would imagine that they would be more willing to hold other teams to the same standard, even bigger teams. Like if you think about it in NFL terms, like during the Patriots' reign, there wasn't this protection of the Patriots for, for, for things in the way that like we would, you know... Some Francis might say, oh, they would never touch the Patriots. Well, like they did twice. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they got the Saints on Bounty Gate. Well, they also got the Patriots on Deflate Gate and, and Spygate. Like there aren't these like sacred cows that just aren't touched. And it's because I think in America there is we view the NFL as 32 more or less equitable teams. And I would imagine that in England they would view the Premier League as 20 more or less equitable teams and would hold them to a consistent standard. I would hope so. That's certainly that would certainly be ideal. Um, I do think, kind of going back to what you originally said, I do think the system is is pretty broken. Yeah. Um, I hope that the Premier League does punish Man City because um, it's pretty clear that you know rules were broken. I'm sure the majority of big clubs in England are breaking financial rules. To be totally honest, um, but they are breaking rules in a way that seems particularly egregious given the nature of their owners. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, I'm not confident that we will get a guilty ruling given the nature of the legal teams 
that are going to be working on this from the UAE perspective. Um, but that's yet to be seen. But I don't know. I think this is just, this is an interesting story um, with not a ton of consequences necessarily for the rest of the league yet, but it may very well have consequences in the next few years. Yeah. John, moving on from one mismanagement to another, <laughs> we we do need to talk about what Ridley Scott did to one of the world's most famous historical figures. And um, This is true. We're talking about Napoleon, the, the, the emperor of France and also the subject of a new movie by... You know, one of the all-time great directors, Ridley Scott, and I think to to I actually don't know how to define your opinion because you gave this movie a very high rating, but then have consistently undermined it in you in the way you've spoken about it. Whereas I can just frankly say I, I just didn't love this movie. But if I was looking at just your 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 four star rating on Letterbox, I would be like, oh yeah, John really liked this movie. But then when I talk to you about it, you seem pretty iffy on it. So I'm, I'm really not sure how to pin you down on it. No, 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 no. I, my stance is very clear. I really enjoyed my experience in Napoleon. It's not necessarily an objectively great movie, even though it has some objectively great moments. But I had fun. And so I'm okay with rating my Napoleon experience as a four out of five, um, largely because of the battles of Austerlitz and Waterloo. Um, I signed up for Ridley Scott battle scenes and he delivered at least somewhat. Um, I think we can, we, we're going to need to do a little bit of a deep dive, which I do want to hear, hear what made you so upset because the movie, I didn't expect a historical masterpiece and Ridley did not give me one. And so that kind of like that met my expectations. And what I got mm. was like a somewhat confused retelling of a man who can't, who was too important and too powerful and too, in a way, in a personality sense, undocumented for him to actually be captured by a two and a half hour and change movie. Um, but it still gave us a little bit of an av avenue into the world he lived in and gave us some, I think, all-time battle sequences. Um, I've always loved Napoleonic history. And so just getting to see it on screen in a movie theater and IMAX was pretty, was pretty sick. Um, but that being said, I mean, you're right. It was a confused movie. It didn't know what it was trying to say. Like, I think we can, I feel like I'm comfortable rating a movie that I enjoyed the experience in relatively high as an experience while still acknowledging that it was not an objectively good movie as like a film. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I would, we can get into the specifics here. I would we strongly yeah. oppose your view of, your your statement of all time battle sequences. Waterloo was so cool. These were, these were fairly, by Ridley Scott's standards, these were fairly average battle sequences by his own standards. If, if we're being, if we're being blunt about it. Like, the if you compare it to whether it's The Last Duel, whether it's Kingdom of Heaven, whether it's Gladiator, or even Black Hawk Down, the action and actual battle sequences in those movies are significantly better than the action in Napoleon. In part, and it's in part because of the Napoleon problem, which is that battle scenes serve a purpose, mm -hmm. and in Napoleon, the battle sequences are supposed to communicate what made Napoleon so special, and that's what this movie, in my opinion, completely fails to do, which is actually explain what's important about its subject figure. If, if, if you <laughs> that's were, a very if valid you were, point. <laughs> if you were watching Napoleon, you would think that Napoleon only lived for self-indulgence, Josephine, and his own ego. Right. Which is just not true. Na Napoleon not only had vast 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 ideas for what social and political and cultural life would look like for his empire not only was he heavily involved in curating laws and art and literature in his empire he was truly one of the two or three greatest military minds in the history of planet earth and he also had a charm that and a charisma that not only made him popular with the ladies more so than his stature and good look should have been, but also made him incredibly popular with his own soldiers. 
And the movie communicates absolutely none of that at all. No, that's absolutely true. It was so confusing to me. I was like, he's not even talking to his soldiers most of the time. Like the most you get is a pat on the back of like a soldier at Austerlitz and him, um, you know, when, when wearing his chest from the soldiers Saint Helena. returns from returns from Elba. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, Elba, Elba. You're right, and and turns the soldiers around and then they march on Paris. You're right. Like no, the, that was he was an incredibly charismatic person who his success from the very beginning was founded on him leading from the front, connecting with his soldiers, and being a leader that. You know, regardless of your views on whether he was a power-hungry maniac, which I think to a degree he was, um, he still clearly had a charisma that appealed to people. And unfortunately, Joaquin Phoenix just didn't capture that at all. Yeah, I think Joaquin Phoenix came into it too old Yeah, I to think really have clearly. the vibrancy. I mean— Napoleon was dead, I think, by the age Joaquin Phoenix is now. <laughs> if we're, I mean, if, if, if we're just being we're pretty close to it, accurate. at least, yeah, yeah. I think he died at fifty. I don't know if Joaquin Phoenix is in his forties, but I, I don't know. I just don't know. But yeah, I mean, somewhere around there, yeah, yeah. Um, the the return from Elba, like, is such a again one of the examples of the, of how this movie misses because it's such a uniquely fascinating subject because he returns from exile with under 1,000 men and, like, two cannons and one ship. Mm-hmm. And three weeks later, he's emperor again, and he never even fought a battle because he just marched through France, reunited with the soldiers who were coming out to stop him, and just turned them all back toward his side by just talking to them. And you do get the one scene where he does that, but, like, that is the story of Napoleon. And when you're spending at least... Uh, in my opinion, a very tedious hour of the movie with him just either just talking with Josephine, who again is a is not an insignificant historical character, but is not what Napoleon is remembered for. Like, no, I just I don't understand what the direction of the movie was supposed to be about, and I don't understand what drew Ridley Scott to the character other than as an excuse to stage battle scenes. And I, I, I do want to say, I think the Austerlitz battle scene was incredible, um, especially when he brings out the cannons and it, it's a it's a show of his genius. He hides the part of his troops and they retreat. He, he, he siphons their retreat in one direction. He cuts them off, they retreat, and then he unloads the cannons, breaks the ice, they all die. Amazing Which of course stuff. is very dramatized. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't quite happen that way, but whatever. But then you get to Waterloo. And Waterloo does the one thing that I really wanted this movie to have, which was really, really wide aerial drone shots of troop mm-hmm. movements so that you could actually see the way that people were being maneuvered on the chessboard as opposed to the close-up combat where you're not really sure how the tactical genius of a general could influence that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really do a good job of explaining why Napoleon lost Waterloo. It makes it sound like... You know, Welling, Duke Wellington was like this phenomenal leader, which he certainly was. But Napoleon made errors at Waterloo, a lot of them. He he consistently went against his own maxims of warfare and acted very hypocritically compared to the you know the the principles of war that he espoused to others. And the movie doesn't communicate any of that. It makes it sound like Wellington just did something and. Napoleon fought fine, but Napoleon, but Wellington was just better. And again, that's just not the case. And I, it wouldn't have been that much less of a movie to actually take some of the history more seriously. And I think in many ways it would have been a more compelling and well-rounded portrait of Napoleon to do so, as opposed to just making most of the emotional core of the movie, reading voiceovers of letters that the two of them wrote to each other. I think that's absolutely true. I think there, there we do agree. Um, I said to you, based on a podcast that we had also talked about, that essentially Ridley Scott tried to make both Priscilla and Elvis, the the two recent Elvis movies, in the same movie, right? One focusing on the grandeur of the star, which was Austin Butler's Elvis from last year, and one focusing on the complex relationship that that star had with their significant other. Uh, which, of course, was Priscilla from this year. Ridley Scott tried to do both of those things, 
Um, and I think we can safely say that Ridley Scott is not exactly the world's most foremost, um, I don't know, romance scripter, shall we say? You know, yeah, I, I wouldn't think, say I think so. That would, I think that would be fair. So the fact that Ridley tried to take on this movie and basically make both of those movies at the same time is, I think it just didn't suit his strengths. But I wanna I wanna hit your 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 main point there, which is the history, because of course Ridley um, took a lot of flack in the build up to this movie for people basically saying your movie's inaccurate, and Ridley was like, I don't care, like oversimplified, but that's basically exactly what he said, and I actually think that's a huge problem. I'm totally okay with him changing history to a degree. Like I don't think I thought Waterloo did a pretty good job, honestly, of depicting the fact that Napoleon rushed his attack because he wanted to beat the British before the Prussians got there. But like, he delayed his attack by right by quite a while all day. Yeah. But he still he del- but he still did he still did try to rush with a frontal assault that didn't work and got mm-hmm. bogged down and finally the Prussians got there. But the British, I mean the British held out for the entirety of the time. Um so I think it's I think it's totally fair to say to oh, to simplify Waterloo to that basically principle that Wellington held his nerve and Napoleon didn't. Um, well, Waterloo had the scale, though, that I wanted from Napoleon. And I think a lot of the movie fails to represent the scale of what Napoleon did and what this era was, which was hundreds of thousands of soldiers in basically like every major battle that happened in this era. Particularly compared to Kingdom of Heaven, where right, he which had like a thousand the <laughs> largest groups of extras I've ever seen. Like those armies look like they go on forever. Like they look like the orcs from the Lord of the Rings. Right, and King those battles would have been much smaller because the logistics that they had at their disposal were not as good. Right. So that's what's interesting, right? Is it does feel often it feels like a smaller movie. Um and I think I think so much of this just goes back to like if you are trying to make a dramatic movie and then ignoring the real history, like, I think your movie will suffer. I'm not afraid to say that. I think that history is cool enough without you having to change everything. Like, the Oppenheimer right. story this year was stunning. And yeah. it was basically Kill- word for word the actual history of what happened. Killers of the Flower Moon is the exact same way. Yeah, and there are plenty of historical epics that do change. You know, I wouldn't say either of those movies are historical epics in the way that something like Lords of Arabia was. Mm. Um, and Lawrence of Arabia does sometimes take liberties with the story for cinematic effect but it gets so much of the scale and the spirit of the story right as it sweeps through the arc of a man's life in a way that I think you're right I think Napoleon doesn't capture doesn't capture the political nature of this conflict but it also doesn't capture like who Napoleon was as a person Lawrence of Arabia does very much capture the enigmatic nature of who T. Lawrence was. And, you know, what I think what took away from this movie for me, even though I had a lot of moments that I enjoyed, um, what took away from it for me was the fact that I didn't learn anything about Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get anything new about who his character was, which Killian Murphy obviously does in Oppenheimer. Maybe Ridley's answer is if you want to learn about Napoleon, go read a book. And that's not well, what he's trying maybe, to do. Well, maybe I will, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't share that. My, my wife's biggest frustration with Napoleon is that nobody tried to do a French accent. Which, I, I again, like, I think it's a, a decent point. Like, it's just they're just pretending that these people are, in, like, they're just speaking in American accents. Mm-hmm. Like, and Megan was like, why don't they just make this a French language movie with subtitles? I always like, prefer that, personally. Like, that would have been a better, and yeah. she's right. I think she's spot on. You wouldn't have gotten Joaquin, and maybe that would have been a good thing, too. But I guess for me, it's impossible to not compare the three three plus hour historical epics that are that came out this year. And what right. Oppenheimer and Kills of the Flower Moon both do so well is they present well rounded, non judgmental portraits of people. Mm-hmm. Their goods, their bads. They, they, they make some inferences. They certainly do make some judgments, but they present the complication of humanity. And Ridley Scott seems to have a very narrow and limited view of Napoleon. 
and only channels that view into this portrayal. If you watch this movie, you think Napoleon is just a sad, small, jealous man. I mean, it, it has none of the charm. It has, he's just a kind of a, a wimpy guy at times. He's kind of petulant at times. He's jealous all the time. He's small. And he's just trying to make up for how, you know, he's just trying to overcompensate for how small he is. That, that, I think that's literally how Ridley Scott views Napoleon. <laughs> I mean, I'd be fair. <laughs> Which is part of it. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're laughing because that is part of who Napoleon was. Right. I th- yeah, I think both of those things are true at the same time. But it's not portraying, it, it's such a slanted view of someone who is incredibly complex. Like, And again, I, I started by talking about all the things that he was amazing at. And you don't. You don't leave this movie wondering why he was such an interesting figure. Right. You leave it being like, that guy got a whole movie? Like, what did he do? Well, maybe maybe the issue, I think another one of Ridley's comments before this movie came out, maybe indicates what his real attitude is. Maybe he is taking the classic, maybe this is really a psyop to sabotage Napoleon's legacy. It's a British propaganda movie. By a British, by a form, one of our foremost British filmmakers. Ridley, when asked about um, the immensely negative critical response in France to his new movie, said, well, the French don't even like themselves, so I don't really care. <laughs> Almost verbatim. No. If he just came out and said, I'm making a British propaganda film, I think that I would accept this movie more than to to pin it on the backs of Napoleon. This is this is not a movie about the real Napoleon. No, that's definitely just, that's definitely yeah. true. I would agree. But it is it is a vibes movie. I I really hope that the the Ridley Scott extended cut has at least three more battle scenes um and then I will be fully satisfied with this movie. But if I don't mo- think it will. Yeah, I would say if if this movie has is four and a half hours, four four fifteen, whatever. If there's another two hours of footage, it would feel about right. If if none of the extra footage had Josephine, That's I would correct. feel like yeah, no we Josephine. got it right. No if it was like politics, more war, and more interactions with soldiers, and then you keep the same amount of Josephine we already have, then I think we would have a better portrayal of see, Napoleon's life. See, and here's here's the strangest thing. I never say this. But this is one of those scenarios where it probably should have been a miniseries. Mm. Like a 10-episode Napoleon, like $300 million Napoleon show would have slapped so hard. I think, I, I will check on this right now. I think Steven Spielberg is doing that. Is he really? With Napoleon specifically? I believe so. If that is true, then like, why are we watching this? That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, because here's the deal, right? We left out, we think about things we left out. We left out the entire invasion of Egypt. Yes, please go ahead. Steven Spielberg is, okay, many years ago, Stanley Kubrick wrote a Napoleon script. That's a right. script about a movie. It didn't happen. Right. Steven Spielberg is producing a seven-part HBO series based on Stanley Kubrick's script for Max. Intriguing. We will have a Napoleon off, and I'm actually very excited for that. That is wonderful news. Um, but I just like, here's the thing. Napoleonic history, we left so much out. I did enjoy what we got. Again, I would like to reiterate, I am not hating on this movie. I did have fun. However, we left out the invasion of Italy, which was just like a sentence in the voiceover. The entire invasion of Egypt, which was an incredible story that involved the Battle of the Nile, the making of Horatio Nelson, who is one of the all-time military leaders ever. Yeah. His first defeat in Israel. Yep, at the Siege of Akko, which I've literally been to. I was kind of sad that we didn't get any representation there. And he literally failed at that siege and then left mm-hmm. back to go to go back to France, not just because you, of You think he left from the pyramids. <laughs> right, exactly. Completely misrepresented. Um, we left out the Battle of Trafalgar, which is like essentially the greatest naval battle of all time. Um, yeah. That was kind of important in 1805, the same year as Austerlitz. You British think you're so great because you have boats. Yep, they do have boats, and they're way better than the French boats. That's a real thing that happened, and literally it was just a throwaway. Ridley didn't mention Trafalgar in a British propaganda piece about Napoleon. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Like Again, you're literally talking, what? you sound like someone who didn't like this movie. I don't understand. I did. I just want more. I just want three more of these movies. That's the problem. 
Yeah. I'm there's too much to fit in. And I've just that's only 1805. There's 10 more years until Waterloo. Right? Yeah. I would yeah. War and Peace is just about the Russian campaign and it's 1500 pages. Right? It is impossible to sum up. The Russian War and Peace adaptation is literally like 6 hours. Yeah. I would say if you're going to if you're thinking about going to see Napoleon, just wait for the longer version on Apple. I think you should go. No, I disagree. That, okay, that's what you can say what you, you want. You should see the battles in theaters. That's cool. But then see the Ridley cut afterward. Yeah, I I really do hope that the Ridley cut does I I hope that there all of the missing scenes are just more interesting than what we saw in this movie. I just want less Josephine. That's all I ask. <laughs> I, I would I would like z- no more Josephine. Um, I, I, if I was going to pin the movie down, if there was one problem with the movie, it was too much Josephine. That would be I think my that's one objectively sentence. true. Yeah. Um, anything else going on, John? That you want to you want to touch on? No, I think I think we've we've covered our bases pretty well here. I feel okay. pretty comfortable. All right. All right. Well, um, it's rare that you like something more than I do, so it's nice to be in this spot. Normally, I'm the one. You know, you're you're the you're the grumpy old man coming in with your dislike for things, and I'm the one who's like, "This was good." So I'm glad that we could reverse roles. <laughs> that's that's today, very so. true. We gotta we gotta switch things around sometimes. Yeah, I appreciate. I it. just I again as a longtime like childhood Napoleon guy, it was not perfect, but I just I like getting some representation for once. It was mm. bad representation, but it was at least something. So. I, I'm waiting with, I'm hoping that uh, Steven Spielberg will get it right. I believe he will. I also am very confident. Yeah. All right. I think that's the pod for today. Thank you guys so much good. for uh, taking the time to listen. And I hope that you all uh, will subscribe to the pod so you can get it next time. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another podcast. Um, we There's obviously a lot of other things going on in the world that we didn't have time to touch on today. There will also be a lot, plenty more movies to talk about in the next few weeks as well. It's true. Um, we're getting into the end of the year. It's going to be a, a pretty stacked year. Megan and I are particularly excited for the film Wonka with uh, Timothy Chalamet. As the I will be Wonka. right back on my old man high horse when that comes back. So stay tuned, guys. You can take that up with us. Maybe I'll bring, I'll bring Megan back on the pod to defend Wonka with me. Um, yeah, but um, thank you so much, John, for, for taking the time to, to hang out with me and to talk. And until Always. next week, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe. And we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys. <laughs>